Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the first questions that we teach our children uh, comes from, I believe it's John Cotton's catechism, how many gods be there? How many gods be there? And the answer they learn is, there is but one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now throughout church history, um, all three persons of the Godhead have fallen under attack at different stages. Uh, And it's been from these heresies and false teachings that um, we have received some of the great creeds and confessions of the church, response in response to these false teachings. And unfortunately, a lot of false teachings about all three persons of the Godhead um, persist to this day. And what's more, as you study church history, um, the more you see that the false teachings from the past really don't disappear, they are simply reused and recycled a lot of times. And misunderstandings regarding the Holy Spirit and His work uh, was present in the days of the early church, and it's still present today. And so we're going to deal with the issue today of being filled with the Spirit. Paul gives the command to the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. And first off, I want to um, make an acknowledgement that there are Christians who have different views than I do on this, but I think this is an important subject to look to God's Word and consider. And I think the implications of our view regarding this uh, have very practical uh, impact on our life. So, back in the second century, uh, there was a movement that came to be known as Montanism. Montanism. Um, there was a man named Montanus, and it's actually reported that he claimed to be the Holy Spirit, and his followers were known to speak in gibberish, and uh, they were very similar to what we talked about a week or two ago. They were very aesthetic. We don't want to be involved with even marriage and, and things that God has given. We want to be holy and separate from all those things. And they had a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit, and Montanists came to adopt views that still impact churches today. The Montanists held a two-tiered approach to uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. So the first tier they had was just ordinary Christians. Right? If you're saved, you, you're a Christian. But the second tier, tier they had, they called him the Numatakoi. Right? I don't know if I pronounced that right, but it's spirit-filled. The spirit-filled Christians was the second tier of Christianity, right? You have the lost, and then if you become a Christian, you get into the first tier, but not until you are filled with the Spirit do you get to the second tier of Christianity. So this was a more advanced group who had received the second experience of the Holy Spirit, subsequent to conversion. All right, now in order to achieve this true holiness, um, one had to reach this level. All right, and that view had serious ramifications, and it still does, regarding salvation, sanctification, holy living, and Christianity in general. Now, the church ended up rejecting Montanism, uh, but 
the underlying errors have come up again and again and again in church history. So what is it to be a spirit-filled Christian? What does that mean? What does Paul have in view when he commands the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit? That is a question the Montanists sought to answer, and it is a question people continue to ask today, and it is a question that I believe the Bible provides clarity on if we consider the whole of Scripture. So we're going to consider this doctrine of being filled with the Spirit under two main headings this morning. Simple headings. First, we are going to consider what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and then we'll simply consider what it does not mean to be filled with the Spirit. Now, before we get into that, let me mention something about discussing the work and person of the Holy Spirit. When we are talking about um, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we're discussing pneumatology. Pneumatology is the branch of Christian theology that is concerned with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, first off, there are certain camps who would say we ought not to even study the Holy Spirit in an academic sense. We ought to simply experience Him. All right? And a lot of this stuff um, I've experienced. Um, my wife came from a background that had similar views as this here. So a lot of this is based on uh, my experience as well. It's not just an ivory tower thing I was thinking about here. I've, I've talked to people who have these different views. I acknowledge that. But there are people who will say you should not make the Holy Spirit into an academic study, right? Just experience him. If you start to study and try to understand it, you're just going to ruin everything. I say that's erroneous for at least four reasons, all right? So I have four reasons why we ought to study the person of the Holy Spirit in the pages of the Bible. Number one, being God, the Holy Spirit is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our trust. John Gill said that, we are to trust in the Holy Spirit for carrying on and finishing the work of grace in us. We're to have faith in Him, just as we have faith in the Father and in the Son. But how can we trust Him, the Holy Spirit, to do His work if we don't understand what that work is? All right, so we need to understand what His work is. Number two, being God, the Holy Spirit is worthy to receive our thanks. But how can we give thanks to him if we do not understand what he has done for us? Number three, being God, the Holy Spirit is worthy of being preached about to others. But how can we tell others about our God if we do not understand who he is? And fourth and finally, being God, the Holy Spirit is likely to be misrepresented by the enemy. Countless in Christendom have adopted an erroneous view of the Holy Spirit, just as others have adopted an erroneous view of the Father or the Son. So how can we defend against heresy and false teaching if we don't understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit? So as Christians, we need to study the Holy Spirit. It's not optional. Right? The one who inspired the command to be filled with the Spirit also inspired the command to show yourself approved, right? a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So it's not optional. We can't just say, well, we're just going to not look into these things and let the Spirit do His work. He's inspired the scripture for us so that we might know who he is and what he does. So our, for, our first point of doctrine then to consider this morning is what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, and I know last time I had a lot of material. I do have a lot today too, but feel free to stop me at any time if you have a question or you uh, have a comment that you'd like to, to interject. Um, we should have some time at the end as well, but don't feel bad about stopping me. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? 
we need not be, we should not be ignorant concerning the revealed, revealed will of God. So we need to understand what this command means. And to do that, I want to look at the testimony of Scripture regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, specifically being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, first, I want to simply state my understanding here of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and then I'll seek to defend it. All right? I want to try to simplify this without being simplistic. All right? A good teacher can take a complex subject and make it somewhat simple if he understands it. If he doesn't grasp it, a complex subject becomes more confusing. So I guess we'll find out how much I really understand what I'm talking about. So what I want to defend this morning is this, that being filled with the Spirit is to be empowered to obey God's Word. Being filled with the Spirit is to be empowered to obey God's Word. All right, now let me start by asking you a simple question. How much of the Christian life requires obedience? Right? Or to put it another way, is there any aspect of your life in which you are not required to obey God? Right? We can answer that question with the words of the Apostle Paul. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 right? The psalmist seeks God with his whole heart. Therefore, he asks God not to let him wander from his commandments. And how does the Apostle Peter put it? He says, as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in what? All your conduct. All your conduct. And what did the Lord Jesus say is the greatest commandment in the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So every single thing that you do in your Christian life is to be done according to God's law word. Everything. Right? Now hold that thought. Now, consider sanctification. All right, think about sanctification. What is sanctification? The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers that question like this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That's the key to sanctification, dying to sin, living to righteousness, right? What does that mean? It means obeying God's law word, right? You cannot understand sin, much less put it to death if you don't know God's law. Sin, the Apostle John says, is transgressing God's law in 1 John 3, 4. And you cannot live to righteousness without knowing the standard of righteousness you are to live by, namely God's law word, in Reformation theology, this is what's known as the third use of the law, and what Calvin called the principal use, the use most closely connected with its proper end. So the principal use of the law is this, guiding the believer in the good works that God has ordained for him. God's law, God's word, is the road map by which we travel the journey of sanctification. Mm-hmm. All right? Growth in holiness, growth in obedience, right? That's sanctification. God's law word is the roadmap so we know how to trap what we should be doing on that path. Otherwise, it's a free-for-all. How do you know if you're being sanctified and growing in obedience to God's word or growing in disobedience? So sanctification, we could say, is simply growing in obedience to God's word. All right, now here's where I want to tie these together. 
Throughout church history, sanctification has correctly been understood as the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. And it is He who empowers believers to be holy, set apart from sin. So I believe then that being filled with the Spirit is the way in which we are sanctified. It is the way in which we grow in obedience to God's Word. If the law of God is the roadmap for sanctification, the Spirit of God is the fuel that enables us to travel that path. And let me give you three reasons why I believe being filled with the Spirit is best understood as being closely related to this idea of sanctification. We're going to look at, one, the nature of the command that Paul gives here in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. We'll look at, number two, the necessity of the Holy Spirit for every single act of your Christian life. And number three, the biblical accounts of being filled with the Spirit. So, number one, the nature of the command. The command to be filled with the Spirit that Paul gives in Ephesians 5.18 is a present participle. It's a continuing action. We could say it like this. We are to be being filled with the Spirit. Continually, It's not a one-time command. The nature of the command coincides with sanctification, which is not a one-time experience, but a continual requirement for the Christian. Justification is a one-time event that occurred at conversion, right, if you're a believer. Glorification will be a one-time event at the end of the age. But sanctification is a continual process. And it's never described as a one-time event in the Bible, or throughout Orthodox Church history. So that's reason number one. The nature of the command that Paul gives is to continue to be filled with the Spirit, a continual command, which coincides with sanctification. Now, number two, the necessity of the Holy Spirit for every single act in the Christian life. The second reason that I link being filled with the Spirit with sanctification is because of the necessity of the Holy Spirit for every single act in the Christian life. I think the best analogy for uh, being filled with the Spirit is this. And I didn't come up with this. I heard this years ago, and it's still, I think, the best one. Being filled with the Spirit is like the sails of a boat being filled with the wind. I, I like that analogy for two reasons. Number one, Jesus uses the analogy of wind when explaining the work of the Spirit to Nicodemus. And the Greek word for Spirit and wind is actually the same word. But second, if you think about a sailboat or boat with sails, um, a sail isn't filled once with wind and then carried across the sea. If the boat is to move, it must continually be being filled with wind. In fact, if you assume there's no current at all, the boat cannot even move without the wind at all, right? It cannot move an inch without the wind. The filling of the sails is absolutely essential for the boat to travel at all. And here's the point. Every single good thing that we do in our Christian lives is a result of the Holy Spirit. Every single good thing that you do in your Christian life is a direct result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the only way you can move an inch in the direction of obedience. Did you give God thanks for your salvation? That thanksgiving was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Did you refrain from a bitter response? That self-control was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Did you respond with joy to a trial that God placed before you? 
That response was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon grasped this, right? He was a man who understood that without the Spirit of God in our lives, all is worthless. We can accomplish nothing, right? He preached to to thousands and thousands, but he knew that his effort was absolutely worthless apart from the Spirit. And he said this, In all the acts of the Christian's life, whether prayer, constant submission, preaching the gospel, ministering to the poor, or comforting the desponding, in all these... The Christian finds his weakness and powerlessness unless he is clothed about with the Spirit of God. Every single thing we do, he said, without the Spirit is unacceptable to God. On the other hand, every single thing we do that is acceptable to God has been done under the influence, the power, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is a gospel truth that as Christians we are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit for our spiritual life. Utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit for our spiritual life. All that we do in our spiritual life may be justly reckoned as being done by the Spirit. Right? Romans 8.13, right? We are to put sin to death by the Spirit. Everything we do may be reckoned as being done by the Spirit, if it is pleasing to God. We are convicted of our sin by the Spirit. Our eyes are opened by the Spirit. We repent by the Spirit. We believe by the Spirit. We obey by the Spirit. All of our obedience may be described as putting to death the deeds of the body, something that Paul says in Romans 8.13 must be done by the Spirit. Now, if everything we do in the Christian life is to be in conformity to God's law word, which it is, and everything we do in the Christian life must be empowered by the Holy Spirit, which it is, then I am forced to conclude that the continual command to be filled with the Spirit is nothing less than a command to be carried along the path of sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I have one more reason why I conclude that being filled with the Spirit is being empowered to obey God's Word, and that is this. The results of being filled with the Spirit mirror the results of being sanctified or made holy. All right, let's consider the biblical accounts of being filled with the Spirit. In his high priestly prayer, first of all, Jesus asked the Father to sanctify his followers in the truth. And then he added what? Your word is truth. As mentioned, sanctification can only be carried out within the bounds of God's word. That's the standard by which we understand what it means to be holy and obedient. Now, if the filling of the spirit is a one-time experience, or even an experience that is, you know, it happens maybe one time and three years later, that brings you to this other level. If the filling of the spirit is a one-time experience like that, we would expect to see the results to be fairly uniform. Every time someone was filled with the spirit, we would expect to see the same thing, right? Just like when every time someone is justified, we know the result, right? However, if being filled with the Spirit is a way of saying that someone is being carried along, not by human passions or desires, the flesh, but by the Christ-exalting, sin-killing, joy-producing, faith-giving Holy Spirit of God, then we would expect to see the results of being filled with the Spirit will vary, but will all be in accord with holy living and obedience to God's word. So what does God command of us? There's a lot of things. If any student of the New Testament and the Old Testament know that there's a lot of commands in Scripture. But among these things, God commands us to be wise, Ephesians 5.15, to kill sin, Romans 8.13, to have faith, 1 John 3.23, to hate evil, Proverbs 8.13, to love our enemies, Matthew 5.44, to not fear what man can do to us, Matthew 10.28, to rebuke sin, as we looked at Ephesians 5.11, to be joyful, 
Philippians 4.4, 4, among others. To share Christ with others, Matthew 28.18. To preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. And to use our gifts to edify others, 1 Peter 4.10. Now these are commands, among others, that we will be obeying through the power of the Spirit as we grow in sanctification. So to further defend my assertion that being filled with the Spirit is essentially the empowerment for sanctification, I turn to the biblical accounts of people filled with the Spirit. And the results of being filled with the Spirit mirror the results of being sanctified. So consider them. I'm going to go through these quick. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to write down the reference, you can. Acts 6.3. The believers are instructed to pick out from among themselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Full of the Spirit and of wisdom. These men were to be characterized as being full of the Spirit and, and wisdom. So wisdom goes hand in hand with being filled with the Spirit. That's Acts 6.3. Acts 6.5. Stephen is said to be full of what? Faith and of the Holy Spirit. This was a characterization of his life. He was a man full of faith and a man sanctified in God's word by the Spirit. He was a holy man. Obedience to the command to believe is here coupled with being filled with the Spirit. So faith goes hand in hand with being filled with the Spirit. Acts 7.55, even at his death, Stephen is characterized as being full of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is living according to the word and the power of the Spirit. It enabled him to lay down his life for Christ. So obedience to the command to not fear those who can destroy the body but not the soul goes hand in hand with being filled with the Spirit. Acts 13.9, Paul was filled with the Spirit and he rebuked the false prophet Bar-Jesus. He said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Right? That's a result of being filled with the Spirit. Rebuking sin goes hand in hand with being filled with the Spirit. Acts 13.52 After many Gentiles come to faith, and then Paul and Barnabas are driven out of town, the disciples are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Joy goes hand in hand with being filled with the Spirit. Acts 4.31, you know the story, the believers gather together to pray, they're filled with the Spirit, and they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now note in their prayer that they didn't ask God to fill them with the Spirit. They asked for empowerment to obey a command, in this case speaking God's truth to others. They asked that God would grant them that they might continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And the result is that they continue to speak the word and continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So sharing Christ goes hand in hand with being filled with the Spirit. Two more. Acts 4.8, Peter is filled with the Spirit. And he does what? He preaches repentance. Preaching the gospel goes hand in hand with being filled with the Spirit. And last one, Acts 2.4, going back to the beginning of Acts. The believers are gathered together on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit comes. And here we have a case of, of signs and a manifestation. But note that when it says they were filled with the Spirit, the result is that they began to speak known languages. And what are they speaking? The mighty deeds of God. They're preaching the gospel to others. They're using their gifts to edify others. So using spiritual gifts to edify others goes hand in hand with being filled 
with the Spirit. So what have we seen here in these eight examples? The biblical examples of being filled with the Spirit are varied, but all have one thing in common. The result of a man or woman being filled with the Spirit is obedience to God's revealed Word. From these examples, we noted eight things which go hand in hand with being filled with the Spirit. Being wise, having faith, not fearing man, rebuking sin, being joyful, sharing Christ, preaching, and using our gifts to edify others. Now, whatever your view on the spiritual gifts are, the accounts of being filled with the Spirit do not point to a connection between any specific gift. The filling of the Spirit is connected to obedience to God's Word. I do not believe that being filled with the Spirit is the way sometimes you think about it, like a technical phrase signifying some physical experience. Right? But rather, it's an acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit who already indwells you, if you are a Christian, is empowering you to obey God's Word. Now, here's the thing. I don't think this is a lessening of the importance of being filled with the Spirit. In fact, I actually believe it's the opposite. I believe this understanding gives the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit its proper place. We undervalue the idea of being filled with the Spirit if we limit it to some mystical, ecstatic experience. You don't live your Christian life generally on your own power and then receive some doses of the Spirit's power here and there for special cases of obedience. Every act of obedience in the Christian life, whether it is repenting and believing whether it's sharing Christ, putting off lust, using your gifts, it's only possible by being carried along, empowered, or filled by the Spirit. That some cases seem more important to us, right? Like Stephen's, you know, his, his death and his glorious response um, to being martyred for Christ, right? Or the, or the apostles and the day of Pentecost. It may seem more miraculous. That may seem more important than ministering to a sick saint or living wisely in the world or as Paul will even say a result of being filled with the Spirit is husbands loving your wives and wives submitting to your husbands. Those things may not seem that great. We know they are, though, and that does not negate the truth that all things are equally done by the power of the Spirit in the Christian's life. So while some people, I think, erroneously look for some outward sign of being filled with the Spirit, the work of the mortification of sin, which is putting sin to death, and growing in holiness are truly supernatural in that they are wrought by the Spirit of God. So the command is continual. Every act of Christian obedience requires the power of the Holy Spirit. And the testimony of Scripture is that being filled with the Holy Spirit is generally connected with being powered to obey any, and we would say all, of God's commands. This coincides with the Christian doctrine of sanctification, and thus I submit that being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time event, but a continual charge to live in communion with God, walking in his word, and killing sin. Now, that's what being filled with the Holy Spirit is. We must consider what it is not, what it does not mean. Before I move on to that, any questions for clarification or comments on that first point of doctrine? This might be a confusing question, but um, to the, I liked your analogy of the wind and the sails. Um, to me, when I hear an analogy like that, I hear a sovereign act of the Spirit not necessarily working in tandem. Um, how would you describe being empowered by the Spirit, or is there some like um, 
does it have to be mutual? Because I know um, Dave's talked about grieving the spirit and how that's a reality in the Christian life. Um, can we grieve the spirit while being filled with the spirit, or is that a sovereign work of God? Does that make sense? Yeah, so, yeah, it makes sense. Um, I think as I understand being filled with the spirit, all right, and we'll touch on this, but every believer already has the Holy Spirit in indwelling them, right? Every believer is already sealed. Um, so that's why I don't think we should understand it. Now, we know God is spirit. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is spirit. It's not a physical, you know, thing in us. It's he's he's all places, but he's taken up residence, especially in the believer. And so being filled with the spirit is is being empowered to obey. So I believe we can grieve the spirit. Um, and that is our, you know, our obstinance, the result of our sinful flesh. Um, and but we're empowered to not do that. So being filled with the spirit, I think, is more of a term saying that you are if you want to, you're not grieving the spirit. You're walking obediently with the spirit. Now, you can only do that through the spirit's power, just like we re- we are the ones that repent and believe. The Holy Spirit doesn't repent for us, yeah. but we can only do that by his power. That's one of those mysteries that we have to hold both, you know, and we're the ones that obey God's word. The Holy Spirit doesn't do it for us. But the only way we do that is if we are being filled with the spirit. And so I don't think it's some some mystery thing to try to figure out, man, I really want to be filled with the spirit. It's if you're walking humbly, obediently, relying on the spirit, you are being filled with the spirit. That that is what's carrying you along because you couldn't even do one thing if it wasn't the spirit moving you. I don't know. Does that make no, sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, it seems like every time uh, this topic comes up, uh, at least maybe being from a certain background, but um, the term baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, is brought up. And I guess my question is is that like, is that just it's entirely different? Is that talking about something entirely different than the phrase being filled with the Spirit, or is it the same? You know, that's never really a clarity on that. I'm actually about to get into that. Okay. That's a great question. Yeah. That's why I anticipate. That. That's good. <laughs> All right, so we'll get right into that. So the second point is, what is it? Chris, in, yes. Sir. I, yeah, I just wanted to touch to that as well. The um, you mentioned the uh, be filled, the imperative, and the participle that is this present tense, keep on being filled, and it's also in the passive voice. To your so to your point, it's it's also being translated keep on receiving. Mm-hmm. The gift of the Spirit. So, you know, you look at Ephesians 4 3, like you mentioned, there is that mystery. It's don't quench the Spirit, you just said the previous chapter. Now he's saying keep being filled, but the implication there is the only way to keep being filled is to keep receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the it's helpful to know that for me, at least in my head, I flesh it out as the, the part that I do um, by God's grace is. I seek to not quench the Spirit. I can't fill myself with the Spirit. I receive the filling of the Spirit. But I can resist sin or um, seek to eliminate distractions so that I am being able to be submissive to the Spirit's work yeah. in me. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, and actually today, we're not going to have time to, but as I move on, we'll look at, I was going to cover it, but I didn't have enough time, how to be filled with the Spirit. And the correlation that Paul, the parallel passage in Colossians, which a lot of the results are the same, but in Colossians he says, let the word of Christ dwell on you richly. So the connection between having the word of God dwell in you and being filled with the Spirit. So fortunately I won't be able to get into too much of that today, but I plan to, so 
Um, so, the, we've already suge- uh, mentioned this. The command to be filled with the Spirit does not suggest a second blessing, right? It's a higher uh, level, but a continual habit of life that is to be present from the moment of conversion until the moment of death. Right? That's the command to be filled with the Spirit, continually. Not, you know, be filled once a month, you know, or, or every few years. Continually. Continually. Because we are continually to obey, to obey. We're not to obey every couple months or every couple years. We're to obey every moment of every day. In order to do that, we have to be filled with the Spirit. Again, it's hard not to think about it as kind of this experience just with the Word, but if you try to think about it in this way, that it's the empowerment to obey what God has called you to do, I think it might help. Now, if you study church history again, you'll realize that the teaching of the Montanists never truly disappeared. And this is where we'll get to the baptism. So first of all, John Wesley, he adopted a two-tiered approach to Christianity as well. He had a second, uh, second work of grace. Um, and the second level of Christian living, once you, you're saved, but you've got to get to the second level. For John Wesley, uh, it was instantaneous holiness, right? Um, there's perfectionism movement in there, the holiness movement. From that holiness movement, the modern Pentecostal movement uh, would be birthed. And the Pentecostals, uh, slight variation, some added a third level, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or some just kind of said, hey, well, the second level is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's historically a Pentecostal um, thing to kind of say the baptism is the second level or third, but whatever the case is, there's multiple tiers. There's um, being saved, and then they like to use, you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit to get to the second level of Christian living. Um, spirit-filled is kind of the Montanists. Uh, consecrated kind of came from, and we'll talk about that, during J.C. Ryle's day and the holiness movement, and then the Pentecostals are kind of like, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But in all cases, it's a misunderstanding, in my view, of the work of the Spirit, creating these two tiers. All right? So, there's been differences and diversions of various branches, but in many ways, some modern-day charismatics build upon this as well and have the same type of multiple tiers uh, within Christianity. And even those outside the camp of Pentecostals and charismatics had to deal with this error. Among dispensational churches several decades ago, and probably still today, um, John MacArthur had to fight against the idea of carnal Christianity. Again, the idea was that there are two tiers. There's the lost, and then you're saved, but you can be saved and not obedient to Christ, and then you have the obedient Christians up here. And that book, um, The Gospel According to Jesus, I remember reading that book uh, like 12 years ago about when I was first saved, and it was just a very powerful book. It was kind of the book that put MacArthur on the map that he was arguing that um, Christ is Lord. Lordship, lordship, salvation. You can't have these. There's not two categories within Christianity. You're either lost or saved. So, J.C. Ryle, ministering over 100 years ago during the Holiness movement, but before the modern uh, Pentecostal movement, he had to deal with this error. And uh, first, he had to deal with the Roman Catholics, who also have a two-tiered uh, view to Christianity. Um, they have, you know, the sinners, you know, or the lost. Then they have the penitent, right? And then they have the saints. So they have these two tiers as well within their understanding. But Ryle also had to deal with those within Christian churches, likely influenced by Wesley, who taught a two-tiered Christianity. And Ryle described it as the unconverted, the converted, and then the consecrated, or the partakers of a higher life of complete consecration. And he disagreed with this position strongly. The Bible, Ryle argued, only presents two classes of men, the lost and the saved, Right, the foolish and the wise, the converted and the unconverted. And I said, yeah, there are various measures of sin and grace. He admitted that. But 
it is only a difference between a higher and lower end of an inclined plane, right? There's not these two totally different categories. So the first problem with this idea of two tiers within, within Christians is that the Bible doesn't present these two levels. But there's another problem as well, and this is what I want you to understand. Misunderstanding the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification and misunderstanding what it means to be filled with the Spirit or to be baptized with the Spirit or to be consecrated, it impacts more than just the doctrine of sanctification. It impacts your view of conversion, the new birth, salvation, and the Christian life in general. So in Scripture, sanctification is presented as a long and gradual process, one in which we're not to grow weary. It's not presented as an instantaneous or leaps and bounds type of thing. Regeneration, or the new birth, right? conversion, is presented as this one-time transfer from death to life. But beyond that initial work of the Spirit, right, and also we'd say within that is when you're baptized into the body of Christ. But beyond that, the work of sanctification is a lifelong process. Uh, But one of Ryle's biggest concerns, and mine as well in our day, is that an erroneous view of a dramatic second work of the Spirit, whether it is being filled, as the Montanists put it, or being sanctified, as Wesley put it, or being baptized by the Spirit, as the Pentecostals may put it, or just becoming obedient to Christ, as the opponents of Lordship Salvation put it, any of those things leads to a misunderstanding of and an undervaluing of the wonderful doctrine of conversion. And it also leads to believers looking in all the wrong places for growth and faith, hope, and peace. So responding to men in his day who taught a second blessing of the Spirit, or a consecration by the Spirit sometime after being regenerated, and as well, Ryle warned with these words. I want you to listen to these. This is classic Ryle here. More consecrated the believer doubtless can be. So yes, we can be more and more holy. And he will be as his grace increases. But if he was not consecrated to God the very day that he was converted and born again, I do not know what conversion means. Are not men in danger of undervaluing and underrating the immense blessedness of conversion? Are they not? When they urge on believers the higher life of a second conversion, underrating the length and breadth and depth and height of the first great change, which scripture calls the new birth, the new creation, the spiritual resurrection. I may be mistaken, he says, but I have sometimes thought while reading the strong language used by many about consecration in the last few years, that those who use it must have had previously a singularly low and inadequate view of conversion, if indeed they knew anything about conversion at all. In short, I have almost suspected that when they were consecrated, they were in reality converted for the first time. Now that's a word for the church today. I know many who are constantly looking for some higher experience of the Spirit. Constantly looking for whatever it's, whether it's the baptism being filled, and yet they seem to know nothing of what it means to be born again from above. And it's not only those who hold to a Montanist-like view of the Spirit's work that do this, that misrepresent conversion, but even many who do not hold to these two tiers, at least you know explicitly in their mind, are in danger of misrepresenting biblical conversion. How many talk about their conversion as if it didn't affect an incredible change in them? 
How many will say, well, I was saved 20 years ago, but I never really started caring about God's word until last year. Or, I was born again when I was a kid, but I lived like the devil until I graduated college and then really started taking my faith seriously. Now, that a new believer, or an old believer for that matter, can sin, I grant. I acknowledge that. That sanctification is a process, I admit. But, that conversion can result in anything other than a drastic transformation, I reject. That a man or woman, a boy or girl, can be regenerated, born anew from, from heaven, have a heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, have God's law written on their heart, and be indwelt with God himself, the Holy Spirit, and yet not be radically changed, I will preach against as long as I live. Right? R.C. Sproul, I feel like I can quote him now, because he's died and went to glory. He said this, True faith always and immediately produces change. Always and immediately. The new birth must be properly preached, believed, and applied if we are to have any understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. George Whitfield, perhaps the greatest evangelist since the Apostle Paul, preached to nearly the entire population of the American colonies during the Great Awakening. And he called the new birth the very hinge on which the salvation of each of us turns. But the doctrine of the new birth is undermined when we misunderstand the work of sanctification, when we twist the meaning of being filled with the Spirit. right? In regeneration, the Holy Spirit brings a dead sinner to life, Titus 3.5. He baptizes him into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12.13. And as a member of Christ's body, every believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. There's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Impossible. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. And Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Does not belong to Him. Now, if our understanding of the Holy Spirit is that He converts someone, if this is how we understand the Holy Spirit's work, that He converts someone, He gets into this category, and then He leaves them for a while until He comes back and really, he comes back and really brings about a change. I fear we are, in the words of Ryle, undervaluing conversion and the new birth and thus undervaluing the glorious work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't, it doesn't matter if you don't know the moment you were converted. That's not the point. The point is this. If we're to do justice to the biblical doctrine of regeneration, we cannot undervalue conversion by presenting a second conversion. Is your testimony presenting a two-tiered level of Christianity to others? If you have been, uh, that's been your testimony, understand that I'm not telling you you're not saved. If Christ is in you, if you love his word and hate sin, you've been converted. And all you've done in your Christian life has been a result of being filled with the Spirit. What I'm saying is, if our testimonies ought to be biblically sound, we ought not present a story of conversion that isn't true. We must present the work of the Holy Spirit correctly, because failing to do so leads to an erroneous view of conversion being presented to the world. And both the world and the church is in desperate need of a biblical view of conversion. A biblical view of conversion. So if we present our, our conversion as if, well, yeah, the Holy Spirit saved me, I was born again, but there was no change in my life until 10 years later. I do not believe that's a correct understanding of the work of the Spirit in conversion. But that is what inevitably happens if you have these two tiers. Because you can have Christians down here saved, but it's, the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and changing your heart is, is very minimal because it takes another work to get you up to the level where you're obedient and walking in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul calls on the saints at Ephesus to be filled with the Spirit. 
He's not urging on them a second blessing, a higher calling. The command is not something that can be simply obeyed once. It is not something you pray for and wait for to happen one day. It's not even something we are to seek on and off. It's not a periodic thing. It is a continual command given to the believer from the moment of regeneration to the moment of death. Continually be being filled with the Spirit. Continually walk in step with the Spirit. Continually live this. It is a command. Pray for it the way you would pray for the strength to put off sin, for faith to believe in God's Word, for boldness to speak. These are commands that we know God grants the ability through the Spirit for us to do. We need not go off on a spiritual retreat and really plead with God to be filled with the Spirit. I'm not saying there's not a place to plead and pray with God, but He has already commanded you to be filled. So He's not holding this back. right? He's commanded you to walk in obedience. He's commanded you to be filled. Obey the command. And we'll consider more how to obey it next week. Any thoughts, questions, comments, disagreements? on this. Tried to cover a lot of material there. I appreciate your patience. The New Testament church was uh, you know, laid on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the question of the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes up in these other movements and denominations based on, honestly, a false understanding of how to translate and interpret different genres of scripture. So you like look at Acts, for example, which are the two main examples where you see this second blessing or this baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 8 and 19. And, uh, you know, people will take narratives as prescription passages rather than describing how the New Testament church was installed. So in Acts 8, you have Philip, who's preaching the good news. You have people responding, believing in Jesus. And then Peter and John were apostles. Philip was a deacon instituted in Acts 6. You have apostles come in, in chapter 8 and... They ask them basically if they've been if they've received the Holy Spirit because Philip doesn't have the authority to institute the New Testament church. So you have this description of Peter and John laying hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Same thing in similar ways in Acts 19, where you have these people who are converted and Paul comes and asks if they have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They don't even baptize the name of John, not Jesus, and they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So the the you know they didn't know of that part of the Godhead. So sometimes we're like, well, were they converted? Were they not converted? Did they need a second blessing? Well, again, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul lays hand, they received the Holy Spirit. But you don't find in then these really more New Testament epistles of how you should organize a church, lead a church, how you should live a godly life in the epistles, which is a different genre than the narratives like you find in Acts. You don't find these commands to have this second blessing or have this second falling of the Spirit like you mentioned. You have be filled with the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit because we're now in the New Testament church that has been laid on the apostles and the prophets. So I totally uh, agree with that assessment of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I do believe that those who think that there's a second blessing um, have the same errors that you mentioned and falsely understand how to interpret a book like Acts. Right. Yeah, and a lot of, and you know, again, this is I know people have family and, and my wife's family, like and when you have this view of being like you're just constantly trying to experience something instead of resting in the word of God that the Holy Spirit inspired, right? I mean this is this is the sword of the spirit. 
These are, these are the words of the Holy Spirit. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, and yet you don't avail yourself of this, you know, you're being foolish. And that's what happens when you, when you make it this thing, that, this experience that just has to come somehow, some way, you end up missing the whole point. And, and then it actually, they try to present it as, well, this is a higher, you know, you need to be, you need to have the higher, and I, and I say that, that you're lowering the, the work of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. because it's way more than, than that. It's every single thing in your life has to be done by the power of the Spirit. So, I think something that can be really difficult is determining whether someone is just um, slow in their sanctification. When you were talking about conversion at the end, whether they are um, just slow in their sanctification or whether um, they truly have not been converted and we need to care more about going back to the basics of the gospel. And did you really understand? Because I think a lot of times um, family members and uh, Friends, there's just like uh, there's this profession of faith, um, and they seem to understand it clearly. But then you look at um, their lives and determining whether um, I think it's it can be a lot more offensive in our culture now to really challenge someone's salvation, right. um, whether they're truly saved. So we kind of chalk it up to sanctification, and it's like, well, we just need to be patient with them. But um, maybe could you give some examples? Maybe. Uh, and that might that might be difficult, but like some lines, some clear drawn lines that we can tell. Um, this is someone that is slowly being sanctified, or this is someone that has not truly been converted, given a new heart, new desires. Because um, I think that can be difficult for us, in, you know, in the circles that. Yeah, as, as always at the last minute. <laughs> I mean, my first point was my my main my main uh, plea was for believe as believers to let's think about how we give our testimony because I think that's part of the 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 problem that when we present salvation as this thing where you know to be saved is kind of like something that you know you get you're getting out of hell but nothing else really happens yeah. then that's people are going to start believing that and then they're going to think they're saved because, well, yeah, you know, I prayed a prayer or I, I believe that Jesus is, is God, I guess. And so I'm saved. Right. And then that leads to that. And I don't have time to get into all those things, but I think the mindset, the, the mind that is set on the flesh is death. The mind that is set on the spirit is life. And it has to be a complete and radical change. And that someone may be fighting sin and still sin, I grant, but that their mindset is not completely, you know, the best to close with this, this is, Paul Washer's example. Um, he said, if I came in here, and some of you might have heard this, if I came in here this morning, I was late, like, you know, I'm 15 minutes late, and you guys are waiting for me, and, and you know, you said, what's going on? I said, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm late. I'm really sorry. I was, um, I was getting ready. I had to run across the street, and as I was crossing the street, I got hit by a tractor trailer, and, and, and that's why I'm late. Um, you guys would say, are you kidding me? Like, you got hit by something with that much power and force, and you look exactly the same, right? You, if you got hit by a tractor trailer, you would be changed. And the point is, if, you, if the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in you, which he does at conversion, you're going to be changed. Yeah. You are going to be drastically and radically changed. And that mindset will be the first thing, repentance, right? Metanoia, change of mind. So if you sin, which we still will, you'll be broken over it. You won't be able to be like, well, yeah, I'm saved, but I just, you know. So that's my short answer to that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yes, sir. You talk about saved and lost. How do the parables of the lost coin, the sheep that wanders, or the uh, the, I mean, I, I would understand 
the parable of the, the sheep, the, nine, the one that left 99, and the lost son, and the lost coin, being God ser- searching after his, his elect among the, the lost to bring them to salvation. That's how I understand those passages, that, that you know, God will do everything to make sure that those people that he has chosen in Christ will be brought to salvation. And then we should um, care that that happens too. And our job is just to preach the gospel to all. Um, so I don't know if that's where you, that answers your question. Or. I mean, I guess my question is, like, were they part of the group before? Were they saved? So the that's yeah that's my general understanding I think you know God knows God knows among the lost those that he will save um, and I think when you look at that passage it says like when you know they'll be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so that leads me to understand this is a, a sinner repenting of sin and being brought into the, the, the fold of God. And so if God's heart is to seek and save the lost, right, that ought to be our heart as well. And so we're to preach the gospel to all and proclaim to everyone. Um, but I don't think my understanding of that passage is not that it's like those are they were saved, but then they went back to the lost. It's that, you know, they're lost and they need to repent and believe. And when God grants that repentance and faith and they respond they're brought into this the, the fold of god and we are to rejoice so i think it's important in that question this question to know what our role is and what god's role is so if you think about um i think about passages where paul talks about rebuking brothers or going after wandering brothers but he uses the word brothers james chapter 5 he says, my brothers, if anyone among you, meaning the church, anyone who bears the name of brother, wanders from the truth, someone brings him back, but whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, will cover multiple sins. Well, that sounds like conversion, but you're talking about somebody who may be a brother walking away, uh, you know, the end of Psalm 19. So my, my point is, at the end, like, you know, you're talking about family, too. Like, what if somebody's professing faith but not living? There's two dynamics. Number one, Paul tells us how to handle that if they're among the church. If they're among the church and they profess faith and they're living in unrepentant sin, you and you get to the point of the, at the end of discipline, you're supposed to remove them from the body and treat them as an unbeliever, um, handing them over to Satan or the world out, out of the church for the purpose that their soul may be saved and spared on, on the last day. The point there is you can't allow them to remain in sin and still treat them as a brother, making them think that it's okay, and this is normal for believers to do that. You don't have that same authority necessarily in your family or outside the church with other people who are professing faith. And I think it's interesting that James says, like, if anyone among you, my brothers, and Paul talks about those who wander, he calls them brothers, and I think the humility there is James and Paul are both showing we have no idea if they're saved. We're following the instruction of the Holy Spirit to treat them and rebuke them or discipline them, correct them in some specific way. But ultimately, you know, Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, we won't know until the last day whether these people are saved or not. And I don't know that the approach that we're, we should have outside of the church um, is different whether they profess to be believers but really aren't or they're just in this slow process of sanctification. You're still 
seeking to expose darkness, live in wisdom, correct opponents with gentleness, not give in to irreverent babble and silly myths, and trust and pray without ceasing, asking God, who is alone and grants repentance, to do that, open up eyes. So there's still this aspect of love and desire for them um, to be saved. So I just I think that the clarity is we don't know if they're actually saved or not. And our approach wouldn't change whether or not they were saved or not saved. We should still be seeking to expose darkness, plead with them through the promise of the gospel and God's law to live according to God's word, and let the Spirit do the work in those instances that only the Spirit can do. Now, my, my final point is that is different among the church. In the context of a body, I mean, if you're living in continued unrepentant sin, even canning them over to the devil, I'm not pronouncing a final judgment on them. I, I'm simply saying your lifestyle is not compatible with that of a believer right now, and therefore for the purity of the church, and so that a little loving doesn't love in the whole lump, you need to be removed from the body. I don't know if that brings yeah. any clarity. And I think that goes to this. If we have a, a, a low view of regeneration, then it wouldn't make sense for us to kick you know, to, to discipline someone and ultimately remove them from the church if they're not obeying God's word. Because if we have this low view, like, well, you can be saved and not do it, not live in obedience, but you got to get up here, then it wouldn't make sense. But if we have a proper view of conversion, we the reason that one of the reasons you one of them that you then discipline someone out of the church is because it's showing they haven't been converted. If it's that you you know if being being Christian is about all your own work and like whether or not you're working good enough then that would be like we're disciplining you because you haven't done a good enough job in your Christian life. But if our if this is our understanding of regeneration that if you are if you are born again, you will be changed. Then we're saying, look, you th- there's this has to be the place and we can't like you said, we would be doing a disservice to you to make you think that that's the work of the Holy Spirit right. in your life that you wouldn't be changed. So Anyway. Well, thank you guys for your kind attention. I know we're running over. I appreciate it. Uh, let me close with prayer, uh, and then we'll, we'll go. Holy Spirit, I thank you for the work that you have done, are doing, and will do. Thank you that you inspired men to write the words of Scripture. Thank you that you've caused the new birth for every single person that believes in Christ. I thank you that you've opened eyes to see the truth. I thank you that you empower us to live the Christian life. You've commanded us through the Apostle Paul to be filled with you, Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be obedient to your commands in all of Scripture, that we would care what you care about, hate what you hate, and love what you love. And I just thank you for empowering us to live this Christian life. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve any of the things that that you give. And I thank you for all that uh, you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.